0: The following podcast is part
1: of a certified educational activity titled Reaching the Next Level of Myeloma Patient Care, Oncology Nurse Guidance on Antibody Therapy and Novel Mechanisms of Action. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerviewcom forward slash BRG860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello and welcome to Reaching the Next Level of Myeloma Patient Care. I'm Beth Feyman from the Tossin Cancer Institute in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm pleased to welcome my colleagues Tiffany Richards from the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston and Donna Canamero from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Today we're going to cover some newer developments in multiple myeloma and use case-based guidance to illustrate how nurses can raise the patient care level by integrating a range of new novel therapies from BCMA therapies to targeted agents with unique mechanisms of action. During this program, we will periodically share several resources summarizing take-home points from our discussion and also providing useful resources for patient management. So please take a moment to download these practical tools before we get started. Now let's begin. So, multiple myeloma is a cancer of the bone marrow plasma cells. Plasma cells will secrete immunoglobulins that are detected in the serum and urine of patients with multiple myeloma. Now, not everybody with an abnormal paraprotein will qualify for a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. There are different phases, and many of our patients will present in the MGUS phase, monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. This occurs when patients have a small amount of serum or urine paraprotein and have no myeloma-defining events, such as kidney disease, renal disease, anemia, or bone damage. Individuals will catapult to a second phase, such as smoldering myeloma, where there's a higher amount of abnormal paraproteins detected in the serum or urine. Now, in those patients, we need to consider them as candidates for clinical trials so we can decide the best way to treat future patients with multiple myeloma or smoldering myeloma. Finally, a category of active multiple myeloma occurs when patients have myeloma defining events, such as a high serum free light chain ratio, high percentage of bone marrow clonal plasma cells, or a decreased creatinine clearance of less than 40, or defined myeloma lesions on MRI. PET scan, or whole body CT scan. Most of you are aware of the CRAB criteria, which stands for hypercalcemia, renal insufficiency, anemia, or bone damage. Those patients will have symptomatic myeloma, which requires active treatment. Now, how should one detect the diagnosis of multiple myeloma? Well, oftentimes patients present with symptoms. However, about 20% of patients will present asymptomatically just on routine exam. We have a buffet of options for testing, such as a complete blood count or CBC, chemistry panel, quantitative immunoglobulins, and of course, looking at the serum and urine pair proteins. Next, we want to look for tissue. The tissue is typically a bone marrow biopsy, or if you have a soft tissue tumor, it might be a plasmacytoma. But for the majority of patients with multiple myeloma, a bone marrow biopsy will look at the percentage of clonal bone marrow plasma cells, and then we'll look under FISH, the fluorescent in-situ hybridization analysis to detect any aberrations in the genes or the chromosomes, which might place patients at a high-risk disease for not doing well, maybe more aggressive therapies needed, or a standard risk myeloma, where you might do just as well with traditional therapies. And then finally, radiologic imaging is so important. A whole body low dose CT scan as recommended by the International Myeloma Working Group is the gold standard for detecting osteolytic lesions, plus or minus other sensitive uh, testing such as whole body low dose PET CT scan or MRIs. So it's important to know that a patient with newly diagnosed myeloma requires a lot of supportive care. And there are some clinical pearls that I'd like to share with you um, for nurses who are diagnosed we're managing patients with newly diagnosed myeloma, I should say. So bone health is really important. We we had the bee and the crab criteria, and we just had the conversation about detection of bone disease. It's really important that we look for changes in bone health, new back or bone pain, supplement with vitamin D and calcium, and also determine if bone-modifying drugs are required you also want to look at their risk for infections. we discussed that multiple myeloma is a cancer of the bone marrow plasma cells. Plasma cells are responsible for secreting antibodies or proteins to protect you from getting sick, and they don't work. So hypogammaglobulinemia is very common in patients with multiple myeloma. They might have recurrent infections requiring um, IVIG or antibiotics. Look for neutropenia and, and other cytopenias, as well as prolonged cytopenias from some of our newer therapies that Donna Catamero is gonna talk about later on, the BCMA therapies. Make sure your patients are getting the seasonal inactivated influenza vaccine and washing hands and doing all the other routine precautions. And then we're gonna talk a little bit later about GI toxicity. Um, some of the newer drugs such as Selenexor might carry more GI toxicity. However, patients with long-term lenalidomide can also have prolonged diarrhea, which requires management with drugs such as cholestyramine or um, imodium. Other effects, as located on this slide, would be the neurologic effects. Uh, many patients with a paraproteinemia will have some sensory neuropathy, or it could be a side effect of drugs such as bortezomib. Renal impairment is part of the diagnosis. Many of our patients will have a low GFR, less than 30. Therefore, avoiding IV contrast dyes, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and maintaining adequate hydration are important. Disease monitoring. Is the drug we're giving to treat the myeloma actually effectively working to lower the disease burden. So making sure as a nurse that routine labs are monitored and I typically check on a monthly basis, especially in the very beginning of therapy um, and ongoing, depending on the the type of the remission, um, is very important with those same tests we discussed a few moments ago. Health maintenance, these patients are living longer than ever, so we wanna encourage them to live a quote unquote healthy lifestyle don't start smoking if you aren't smoking, uh, alcohol in moderation, and making sure you're you're exercising regularly. One of the things that we know about multiple myeloma is it's an inheritably coagulable disorder. Uh, We know Virchow's triad, which looks at your risk of developing a VTE. Based on that and other data, there is this impede VTE risk which is what I use in my practice to risk stratify patients with newly diagnosed or relapsed myeloma. It takes into account is a patient on an immunomodulatory drug, do they have erythropoiesis stimulating agents, maybe based on their chronic kidney disease, a history of VTE, et cetera. And you can assign a risk score for your patients to see if they're at risk for VTE. Do they need to be on a DOAC, the direct oral anticoagulant? or can they get away with just an aspirin? Donna, what tools do you use to assess for uh, risk of VTE in your patients? So we
0: use a very similar tool, and I think we also consider um, patient mobility. Are they mobile? Are they active? And that really kind of guides our decision how we prophylax a patient.
1: Excellent. And I just want to say this. It always makes me smile. One of the first times I met Dr. Richards about almost 20 years ago, gosh, she asked me about... Do your patients have uh, blood clots? Because she was observing in the early days of IMIDS that patients were developing blood clots. Um, What are some of the strategies you take, uh, Tiffany, to minimize risk of blood clots and with what drugs? Yeah, that's
2: a good um, question. When, similar to what Donna had mentioned and you had mentioned, we also take into consideration the patient's frailty um, as well because if you have somebody who's at risk for falls, then that might guide which way um, we may, may direct what uh, drug we're gonna use. Um, and also if they've had prior falls and if they have history of like atrial fibrillation um, as well. So we take those into consideration as well.
1: Absolutely. So if your patient is newly diagnosed with multiple myeloma requiring therapy, we always recommend clinical trials because we haven't gotten to the point where we have so many drugs available without clinical trials, but not everybody is a candidate for clinical trials. Therefore, the National Cancer Comprehensive um, Guidelines recommend, if you're a candidate for stem cell transplant, maybe a three-drug regimen with bortezomib lenalidomide and dexamethasone is right for you. Um, Also, other recommended would be carfilzomib um, containing regimens or daratumumab containing regimens. For non-stem cell transplant candidates, it's very much the same. You really just want to avoid alkylating agents in high doses for prolonged periods such as melphalan, which can impair stem cell harvest. Let's go into our first case study, Margaret. She's a 75-year-old patient with um, revised stage two myeloma, so she doesn't have too much burden of disease. She probably has standard risk cytogenetics as listed on this slide, and a history of well-controlled high blood pressure and diabetes. She does have some peripheral neuropathy from that diabetes, but a pretty good performance status, right? She's got an Eastern Cooperative Group performance status of a one. So what are some of the things that nurses should consider? Should we pursue stem cell transplant with market or should she be offered an upfront triplet with daratumumab, Lendex. And assuming DRD is chosen, what are some of the practical considerations? Uh, Tiffany?
2: Yeah, so we would consider her for transplant. Um, We would set her up to see our transplant team. Um, But given her neuropathy that she already has, we may elect to proceed with uh, DRD just because we wanna try and mitigate any further risk um, of her developing any worsening neuropathy.
1: Got it. Tiffany, why don't you talk to us about some of the principles of nursing care in newly diagnosed myeloma patients? So with the uh, anti-CD38
2: antibodies, we have both sub-Q as well as IV um, administration options. Um, All the uh, regimens require a um, post-infusion observation time. So it's generally three hours for subcutaneous daratumumab. Um, whereas it's going to be about six hours if they're getting it IV. It's going to be given over a prolonged period of time. It can cause some hypogammaglobulinemia, so particularly in patients who have a history of frequent infections, you may want to consider starting IVIG. It's also important that you screen for hepatitis B core antibody, and if positive, then the patient may need to be placed on prophylaxis if uh, required. It's also important that your blood bank is notified that the patient is going on an anti-CD38 antibody just because on the surface of red blood cells, CD38 is mildly expressed, and so the drug can bind to that and then make it difficult to do type, in, type uh, and cross-matching. And so you also can order a molecular phenotype testing prior to starting. So that way, the blood bank has that on hand, and it can sometimes make it easier to uh, do the type and um, cross-matching post-infusion. The other um, things to be taking into consideration with anti-CD38 antibodies, um, one is they're extremely well-tolerated, very minimal side effects. Um, We can see the infusion-related reactions, although with subcutaneous daratumumab, we don't really see that. Um, Whether you're using daratumumab or estetuximab, you're going to want to make sure that you're pre-medicating patients with with acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, dexamethasone, as well as montelukast. We can see cytopenias, particularly when they're being combined with other agents, in particular the um, IMIDs. You wanna make sure that you consider prophylactic IVIG as I mentioned previously, just because they can develop um, hypogammaglobulinemia. The other thing to take into consideration is if your patients are receiving the COVID vaccines is to make sure that they realize that they still really need to make uh, sure that they're adhering to um, COVID precautions. Just because we know that patients who are on the CD38 antibodies are not gonna build up the same immune response to their vaccines. Uh, So that's really important. Um, Donna, uh, any other considerations that you would take into consideration?
0: Yes, so I just want to stress infection prevention. So we do see a higher incidence of infections, especially um, with combination therapies. So, And we see both viral and bacterial infections. So just really to be mindful, educating patients on
1: infection precautions. And Beth, what about you? No, I I agree with all the above points. I think infection prevention is so important. Uh, We have been giving our patients um, Evusheld, which is a pre-exposure prophylaxis for some of our patients in daratumumab or who have received solid organ transplant um, as an added layer and that data still continues to fluctuate. So I hesitate to actually mention that, but it is something that we do in our practice. So um, with that, I'd like to move on and talk about um, what about your patients that relapse, you know, one to three prior therapies. A lot of times it's mixing and matching the same, you know, three or four drug regimen. And I take into account in my practice, the risk of the disease. So I might be a little bit slower to layer on uh, different drugs and sequence them differently, such as going from, you know, Bortezomib Lendex and then a pomalidomide-based regimen. And there are so many different algorithms out there um, that we have to individualize that approach. And I'm gonna do another plug for clinical trials because uh, those are very uh, good ways of finding out what drugs to use. But again, mixing and matching the different drugs. Let's look at some of the data to support the use of different drugs in relapse refractory myeloma. Um, so, some preferred antibody-based regimens include daratumumab and isatuximab, both anti-CD38 monoclonal antibodies, and both of them have clinical studies in combination with either carfilzomib, dexamethasone, or pomalidomide, dexamethasone in the CANDOR and the Apollo trials. And so what we're seeing is pretty impressive progression-free survivals in patients with previously treated multiple myeloma. um, And so the overall survival, it takes many, many years to find out, so we don't have that data for these studies. um, But the carfilzomib-containing regimens um, are pretty good, especially in combination with um, patients with high-risk disease. Um, and then when you look at the Icaria and the Ikema trials, um, the use of the antibody triplets also um, shows um, good evidence with the Isopomdex versus Pomdex um, in the Icaria, and then the Esacad. Um, so proteasome inhibitor being the car- Carfilzomib versus the immunomodulatory drug. So again, mixing and matching different triplets in relapse disease is what's recommended. In terms of phase three evidence to support novel mechanisms of action, and we have a drug called Selenexor. Selenexor is an oral inhibitor of nuclear export protein, which was recently approved in combination with bortezomib and dexamethasone. Now, Tiffany's gonna talk in a few moments about side effects prevention with that, but when we used the, the drug in um, just in combination with dexamethasone, there was a 26% uh, response rate in penta-refractory patients, now moving it earlier, not only do you have less GI toxicity, but you also have better response rates um, uh, with the cell or 13.93 months versus 9.46 months. So again, that's FDA approved. Um, So what are some of the basic principles of therapy? If you're a nurse or a provider uh, taking care of patients with multiple myeloma, how do you decide for all these drugs what to use? Well, we take into account the timing of the re- relapse and the response to prior therapy. What are the side effects? Do they have leftover peripheral neuropathy? How aggressive is the relapse? Do they have hypercalcemia and new, um, new uh, symptomatic lesions that need radiated? Um, and what is their performance status? Uh, Tiffany mentioned before she takes into account fitness in many cases with risk stratifying, and, and that's the same kind of Uh, idea when you're looking at the patient's uh, next therapy. So always consider the comorbidities, frailty, and convenience. And we balance that against patient preference through shared decision-making, which is discussing what the drugs are available and what the risks and benefits and the patients' and caregivers' um, desires are as well. So we have some contrasting cases. I'd like to talk about a 66-year-old patient with uh, stage two myeloma versus a 70-year-old patient, um, and then we're going to just discuss this briefly. Uh, so let's consider that 66-year-old who good performance status had a uh, combination therapy with lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Went on to stem cell transplant. Had nice remission for four years with lenalidomide. Um, another patient might be very uh, similar in disease presentation, a little bit older, subsequent uh, maintenance and that at progression, however, went on the darapomdex And then after one and a half years, uh, carfilzomib, cyclophosphamide, and dexamethasone. And then unfortunately, those remissions and relapses in this patient are a little bit more rapid. Um, so what are some of the clinical decisions that you would take into account? Uh, let's go back to Donna for a moment. We have somebody that's starting to rapidly progressed with short remissions, what would you be considering as their next therapy and how?
0: Yeah. So, you know, let's look at the seven-year-old patient um, has several lines of relapse. Um, This would be a good patient, you know, for clinical trial and to try maybe a different mechanism of action. Um, So I think it would be a good time to switch for this patient. Um, Looking at Uh, the 66-year-old who did very well on uh, Revlimin maintenance um, and then had progression after four years, we might want to, um, you know, add in a monoclonal antibody with an immodulatory agent um, since she did so well with her first line of therapy.
1: That's great. And you know, um, making sure that the supportive care, I'm going to put a plug in for supportive care. Do they have shingles prevention with the acyclovir? Um, Are you routinely looking for um, the immunoglobulins and if they're having recurrent infections, you know, hospitalization? Uh, With relapse, do we restart the bone modifying drugs? You know, things like that. Uh, We have to keep in the back of our minds as nurses because some of the providers, clinicians or physicians might forget those details, but that's um, something that you can uh, bring up to us. Um, Tiffany, maybe talk to us about that 66-year-old patient um, who is now progressing at four years but only had one prior therapy. What are some of the things that go through your head when you're thinking about the next best treatment?
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is potentially you could use bortezomib selenexer on this patient, um, or you could consider adding daratumumab and going to daratumumab pomalidomidexamethasone. Um, But let's talk a little bit about selenexer, particularly since this patient only had one prior lines of therapy. Um, and so, as Beth had mentioned, that the selenexer combined with of dexamethasone had superior uh, progression-free survival compared to of dexamethasone alone. As far as management of side effects, we can see that the cytopenias were um, occurred more often in the selenexer arm, um, but the infection, with, particularly with pneumonia, was pretty equivalent between both arms. Um, we can see that there was more fatigue. Additionally, there was more neuropathy in the bortezomib dexamethasone arm compared to with selenexor, and that probably has to do with that the bortezomib was given once a week in the selenexor arm. The one thing to keep in mind when combining selenexor with bortezomib is that the selenexor dose is actually lower Um, It's only 100 milligrams once a week. Um, And so generally, the adverse events are much more manageable compared with just using selenexer and dexamethasone. That being said, though, is we really want to make sure that we're being aggressive with our supportive care. So patients really should be placed on antiemetics right from the start with something uh, such as odansitron, and then you could also consider adding olanzapine uh, to help mitigate that nausea. You want to make sure that they understand when to take their Selenexor um, we usually have them take their antimetic and their dexamethasone first, um, and then try taking the Selenexor after they've eaten something, um, and so making sure that they understand how to take it. The other thing to keep in mind is that we can see that the nausea really decreases after the first cycle. So with the first cycle, it's about a third of patients will experience nausea, but with the second cycle, it goes down to 13%. Um, And so sometimes just making sure that patients understand that this is not long-term, that they'll have this nausea. We usually consult nutrition uh, get them on board early Uh, we monitor their blood counts uh, about twice a week uh, just because they can also have some electrolyte abnormalities as well and so you want to make sure that you're staying on top of it some patients do need to receive iv fluids uh, particularly with that first cycle so making sure that you're staying on top of it right from the beginning rather than waiting until after the patient has a lot of nausea and vomiting, um, can be really, really helpful for patients. Um, Donna, is there anything else that you do uh, that I have not mentioned? So, you know,
0: we try to uh, be very proactive. So if patient needs additional appointments to come in for maybe hydration support to get them through that first period, we can certainly uh, schedule them more frequently to provide that supportive care. And what about you, Beth?
1: Well, I'd like to say that I like giving Selenexor with the Bortezomib because they are in the infusion suite and I can kind of give them a little bit of extra fluid there if they need to. I also like to say a low dose of Selenexor is better than no dose. And what we know about this drug is that you can, in some patients, get away with a much lower dose of 40 or 60 milligrams weekly. There's a stop trial, which is ongoing, that's a, a looking at different arms of like with and pomalidomide. And and, um, we know it's also good in patients that had prior exposure to daratumumab as well. There are some signals that were presented at ASH this year. But um, the last thing is the thrombocytopenia. I do have to give um, romoplastom to some of my patients with um, severe uh, thrombocytopenia. If you check their marrow, then they have some questionable myelodysplastic like ITP like changes sometimes. And so I find that um, platelet growth factor support is useful in some patients if you can get it approved. And how?
2: what about with the patient who has the heavily pre-treated myeloma? I think Beth, you're gonna guide us through this next case study um, in this patient population.
1: Yes, oh my gosh. And um, Tiffany, Donna and I have all been doing this for you know 20 years and I know we don't look like it, right? But we have been doing <laughs> this for a long time. And now we are seeing these patients with multiple lines of therapy where they were sequenced through thalidomide dexamethasone, then lenalidomide dexamethasone, and then now it's, you know, they have had lots of lines of therapy. So Alex is now 73 years old and has been heavily pretreated, lots of different lines of therapy refractory to four lines of therapy, but still pretty fit with a good functional status. Uh, What are some of the things that you would think of? We've talked about clinical trials and the importance of that, but I'd like to maybe go on and talk about BCMA-directed therapy, and I'd like Donna to um, tell us about what BCMA is and what we should think about in terms of that type of therapy. Donna? Sure. Um, So BCMA is a novel target in
0: multiple myeloma, as it's highly expressed on the surface of my cells. Um, So we have several um, therapies that are now approved and in the NCCN guidelines for patients who have received uh, four or more prior lines of therapy, including an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, a proteasome inhibitor, and a modulatory agent. Um, these therapies include belantamab mafodotin, which is an antibody drug conjugate, idacaptagene vitilusol, and um, Siltocaptagene otilucil, which are uh, both CAR-T therapies directed uh, towards BCMA. So now just focusing in on CAR-T, so um, I want to just briefly review the pivotal clinical trials which led to FDA approval for these products. So, Karma 1 was looking at Idacel, and we see an overall survival benefit of over 34 months with an overall response rate of 73%, of which a third of patients achieved a CR or better. Cartitude 1 was a pivotal clinical trial for Siltacel, and we saw an overall response rate of over 97% which of which 82% of patients achieved astringent CR. Um, the median overall survival was not yet reached at a follow-up of two years. So um, looking at the safety profiles for both Siltacel and Idacel, you see that um, cytokine release syndrome or CRS is common. Um, however, they are lower grades, so milder cases of CRS. Um, there is, however, a the timing of CRS varies between the two products, with Cell being more of a delayed um, CRS with a medium onset of time of seven days. And then Idacel is an earlier onset of CRS with a median onset of only one day. ICANNS or immune effector cell associated neurotoxicity syndrome um, is seen in both products, but again, lower grades, so mainly grades one and two. And then we also see infections that are common in the two products. And we also see a higher grade of infection, so grade three and four. And these um, infections usually require IV antibiotics or a hospitalization. So um, you can see here on this slide that there is a dose range for each product and this will be determined um, on the manufacturing um, process. So it's a one-time infusion of a patient's own T cells that are re-engineered to target BCMA. Um, So we, we do the apheresis where we collect the T cells from the patient, they will be sent off to be manufactured and the turnaround time is typically four to six weeks when we have the product returned to us and to be infused into the patient. The infusion typically will take place on an inpatient setting, however, there are opportunities to give this as an outpatient, but we need to monitor for the cytokine release syndrome, neurotoxicities, and other cytopenias. So prior to administering CAR T therapy, patients will receive several days of lymphodepleting chemotherapy, and this will consist of cyclophosphamide and fludarabine. And the goal of this therapy is to kill off the patient's T cells to make room for the new CAR T cells. Um, prior to administering the CAR T infusion, we would premedicate the patients with an anhistamine and a um, acetaminophen, just typical to any blood product. Um, CAR-T can only be infused at a certified center and these centers um, must go through a REMS program. So we have to ensure that we have at least two doses of tocilizumab for each patient. And we must make sure that we can appropriately manage patients for cytokine release and neurotoxicities. And then finally, our third agent that targets BCMA is mafodotin. Again, it's an antibody drug conjugate. It's given as an IV infusion every three weeks. The more, most common um, side effects are ocular events. So therefore we must make sure that patients do obtain an ophthalmolic exam prior to dosing. And we must monitor for any ocular events, um, decreased visual acuity, ocular symptoms such as dry or scratchy eyes. And most of these events will occur during the first two cycles. And how we mitigate this is we we will dose hold and dose reduce. And we see that we can manage these toxicities quite well by doing this without um, interfering with the efficacy of the drug. Also, just keep in mind, this is a monoclonal antibody, so there is a risk for infusion-related reactions, but we won't pre-medicate patients unless they have a reaction. And then moving forward, we keep those pre-medications on board. And
1: Beth, I'm gonna throw it to you. Well, thank you for throwing this to me because that (laughs) means we're almost finished, right? And I think uh, this has been such a great interactive discussion. I'm going to put my two cents in on uh, the BCMA therapies. I think Belantamab Mafodotin is a great off-the-shelf therapy. We use regular eye drops around the clock, every um, you know four times a day, and the company actually has a program to provide uh, free eye drops to patients. Um, they can't wear contact lenses, they can't drive, so we have to sometimes look for resources, but for our patients that are rapidly progressing and we can't wait and we want a BCMA CMA therapy, that's something that I like to go to. Can I go to Tiffany and say, you know, what are some of your pearls for BCMA therapy?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, getting patients on the list to receive CAR T cell therapy is important. Um, I think, you know, in looking for clinical trials for, um, the CAR T cell engagers will also is also really important when we're thinking about anti BCMA tar- therapies. So I think one other consideration when we're talking about BCMA targeted therapies are the uh, bispecifics, uh, clinical trials such as with teclistamab or Regeneron five four five eight five eight are considerations
0: as well. Uh, Donna, what are your thoughts? So, I think the BCMA data is very encouraging, and we haven't seen responses like this in patients that have been so heavily pre treated. So, it's very exciting. So, but right now we have three approved agents, and CAR T space is very limited. Um, so, it's important to refer patients early. So, um, when they're undergoing their four, fourth line of therapy, that's the time to refer a patient to, to an institution that is certified um, in giving CAR T therapy. Uh, to make that relationship, establish that relationship. So when they do need the CAR-T therapy, um, they can go in and have that relationship already established. Um, I will just jump on what Tiffany was saying. These uh, bispecific antibodies are very exciting. Um, And if patients do not uh, qualify for CAR-T or do not have spots for CAR-T clinical trials with a bispecific is, is a great opportunity. Yeah,
1: and along with that too, Donna, there's different bi-specifics with different targets. Like, so the BCMA, maybe somebody has gotten a BCMA CAR-T, had a great response, but now they're progressing and they have different targets, right? Like telketamab, you have that at your institution. Um, maybe share it your... Thoughts briefly on telcadamab. So telcadamab is uh, targeting a different receptor,
0: uh, GPRC5D. Um, And we've seen that patients who've had prior BCMA, whether it's an antibody drug conjugate or a CAR-T are actually responding quite well um, to a different target with with a bispecific.
1: Yeah, and they have the different um, dermatologic toxicity, And we have, and of course, with other targets comes other side effects. Yes, yes. And we're going to talk about that in future programs, I'm sure. So, but for right now, I want to thank you for your kind participation. And uh, this concludes our case-based exploration of novel therapeutics across the spectrum of multiple myeloma. I'd like to thank from the bottom of my heart, Tiffany and Donna, for being part of this interactive discussion. I'd like to thank our peer review um, group and sponsors of this program uh, to make it possible. And I hope you found this activity to be informative and useful in your clinical practice. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peer Review Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at PeerView.com. Forward slash BRG eight six zero. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC and Karyopharm Therapeutics.